obesity, sexual health, diabetes, supporting men's health and patient care, building knowledge in men's health communities. Welcome back to the Men's Health Podcast as we dive deep into all areas of men's health joined by leading researchers and experts within the field of men's health. Today, Dr. Edward Mills is our expert guest as we discuss a new and exciting hormone that could potentially prove to be a future treatment for patients with hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So my name is Edward Mills and I'm a clinical lecturer in endocrinology based at Imperial College London. And essentially that means that I have a hybrid job. So part of my week is spent doing clinical research in the field of reproduction and then the remainder of my week is spent diagnosing and treating patients with endocrine disorders in hospitals. And, and so what made you interested in, in getting into the field of, of reproductive health and, and uh, endocrinology? Yeah, so my research investigates the interaction between reproductive hormones and behaviour. And I guess as a practising endocrine doctor, I've always been very struck by the frequency which psychosexual symptoms always present in patients that have hormone-related problems. But one of the big issues that we have is that lots of these symptoms aren't always alleviated when you treat the underlying cause. And so what that did was inspired me to undertake some research understanding the brain pathways of psychosexual disorders, but also to try and develop new treatments that I can use for my own patients. Yeah, thank you. And and, and for those who, who aren't aware, you mentioned a few times that the, the term psychosexual. Um, how do you define psychosexual or, or psychosexual behaviours? So psychosexual uh, behaviours are all related to the production of offspring. So we know it's all very evolutionary and it includes lots of different things like selecting the right partner, uh, copulation, sexual behaviour, and it's all, all the way through to care of the young. And so we know that the very typical psychosexual symptoms that people may experience could be, for example, uh, loss of libido, so a change in people's sex drive, and through to things like erectile dysfunction, so an inability to maintain an erection. So psychosexual behaviours are, are, are very similar uh, to reproductive behaviours? Yeah, so they're very, they're very similar. Uh, we know that in more uh, higher species, so for example, humans, we've obviously uh, evolved to gain reward and satisfaction from sex and its precursors. So for example, sexual desire and arousal. And so it's a lot more of a complex picture in humans. Okay, and, and so if we put the lens uh, onto men, um, what hormones are important for, for the regulation uh, of, of reproductive behaviour? So historically, we've always thought of testosterone as the, the main hormone that controls sexual behaviour. Um, but we've got lots of uh, data now from studies, for example, where they've shown that in men who have normal levels of testosterone, but they've got some psychosexual symptoms, if you give those men testosterone, then you don't fully restore the problems that they're experiencing. And we also know that in other groups of men, for example, that have low levels of testosterone and they've also got psychosexual symptoms, again, if you give those men testosterone, it doesn't fully restore their levels of uh, behaviour back to levels of other men. So it suggests to us that there must be other important hormones that are out there that we didn't really know about until recently. Okay, and so what role does sex have uh, on, on sexual desire? How does it compare between uh, men and women? Yeah, okay. So for many years, the, the widespread belief was that men have a higher sexual desire than women. And often people have felt that that was because men have high levels of testosterone. But we now know uh, over the last few years that that really isn't the case. And particularly as we evolve our understanding of things like sexuality and gender, 
that sort of balance isn't as clear cut as we once thought. Yeah, okay. And so for you then personally, over the last few years, a lot of your work has been focused on a condition called uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And I think it's fair to say it's probably not the most well-known condition out there. Um, So for those who aren't aware, would you be able to explain uh, what it is? And and is it a relatively newly discovered uh, condition? Yeah. So hypoactive sexual desire disorder, sometimes people will abbreviate it as HSDD. And it's a a condition where men or women can get a persistent lack of sexual desire. And with that, they get very severe distress. So it typically lasts more than six months uh, to be diagnosed with the condition. And we know that these are men and women who are otherwise entirely healthy. So, for example, they don't have any medical or psychological causes for why they may have low sexual desire. And we also know that these are people who have normal levels of their reproductive hormones. So in men, they will have a normal level of testosterone. And actually, very typically, these are men and women who previously had normal sexual function at some point in their life. And for some reason, there's been some uh, brain disruption. um, And that's what's caused their, their low levels of sexual desire. So you mentioned their brain disruption. Um, what areas of the brain uh, are involved in, in HSDD? So we now know from a range of neuroimaging studies where they've studied uh, brain activity in patients with HSDD, that it appears to be caused by excess brain activity in the sort of higher cortical brain regions. So these are brain regions such as the precuneus or the posterior cingulate. And what they control is the way that we feel. So for example, they're to do with self-monitoring, self-judgment, introspection, And so you get high levels of activity in these brain areas. And what that therefore does is it suppresses the more downstream emotional brain areas, for example, the amygdala, which are our sexual arousal and desire centers. So essentially, it's a conflict between uh, hyperactivation and hypoactivation in different brain areas, rather than neuropeptides itself. It's the brain processing in response to sexual stimuli. Despite the presence of sexual stimuli, which could be anything that would normally trigger arousal, a person with HSDD fails to feel aroused and often will not experience typical sexual thoughts and fantasies. HSDD can be a lifelong condition, whereby the individual has always suffered from a lack of arousal, but it can also be acquired later on in life too, and be situational. But how prevalent is HSDD? So it's actually one of the commonest sexual health pathologies that we as doctors see. So there's estimates suggesting that about 8% of men will be affected and about 10% of women. Um, And so really it's, but that actually probably is the tip of the iceberg. So we know that lots of people are very hesitant to seek medical advice because they find it quite an embarrassing topic, both from the patient, but also sometimes doctors are less likely to inquire about sexual symptoms so the prevalence is probably a lot higher than what we suspect, which is eight and ten percent. Absolutely, and, and and as you mentioned, you know, men find it difficult to come forward with, with any health concern, let alone uh, a sexual health issue, uh, which often holds a weight of embarrassment and shame. Um, but the reality is, these issues are, are far more common than than men who suffer from them think. Uh, and almost normalising it in a sense can can remove that embarrassment and shame that is attached to many of these sexual health issues. Um, but, but you mentioned something there, which I found uh, really interesting. That is that doctors are often less likely to inquire about sexual health issues uh, with men. Do you think this is an area that needs uh, addressing? Do we 
need to make GPs and healthcare professionals in general more aware of not only the symptoms of, of sexual health issues, uh, but also provide them with the resources to feel comfortable inquiring about these issues uh, in the first place. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a very serious condition um, and patients will often go hidden for long periods of time. They won't seek advice because they feel like people sometimes may not necessarily take their concerns seriously. Um, so, uh, yes, I think there needs to be a lot more training in the way that doctors are able to ask very sensitive questions, um, but also uh, more public health awareness that it is a serious condition that patients should see a doctor about if they're concerned. Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned before that HSDD isn't a condition that only affects men, it, it affects both men and women. Um, but does it affect them differently? So that's a difficult question. We know that although HSDD can affect both men and women, there's been a current change in our understanding of sexual desire. And that's led some health professionals to try and confine the diagnosis of HSDD to men. Whereas in women that have a clinically significant lack of sexual desire, they've now called that female sexual interest arousal disorder. Okay, and, and in terms of HSDD itself, many people might perceive it to be uh, a relatively benign condition insofar as there's maybe no immediate or, or acute uh, health concerns. Um, but often with, with these issues and sexual health issues in general, there's a cascading impact uh, which move on to other areas of health and, and life. Um, so should we consider HSDD a serious condition? So we know that sexual health is an important uh, factor in people's overall health and well-being. So when sexual desire is absent, it can have very marked effects on people's quality of life, their intimate relationships, often with relationship breakdowns, for example. Um, and because of that, it can have effects on people's overall fertility. So with all of those features, uh, some of these patients with HSDD can have uh, social anxiety, they can have depression um, or, or even insecurity generally. And so we see with um, with a lot of these health conditions, um, many men might just think, you know, it, it's, it's part of a normal aging process. Um, therefore, you know, there's nothing they can really do about it. Um, and they don't realise actually the, the beneficial impact resolving these underlying issues can have on, on, on their overall quality of life. Uh, and in this case, it could be, you know, uh, engaging in, in, in sexual behaviours and, and, and re-experiencing uh, arousal, it can have a really hugely beneficial impact when they actually get these issues looked at and resolved. Yeah, and that's certainly one of the myths around HSDD that low sexual desire is part of an aging process. I guess the thing that makes HSDD very unique to anything else is that these are men and women who are very distressed and they are concerned by their low sexual desire. Whereas we know that people's sexual desire can change as they get older, but it's not normal to become distressed and concerned about it, which really is the, the unique feature of the diagnosis. A big challenge for men with HSDD is that despite the high clinical burden, there are no licensed pharmacotherapies. And for premenopausal women only, just one licensed therapy exists. Many men with HSDD may attempt to use off-label agents like PDE5 inhibitors, which are a conventional therapy that helps resolve issues obtaining erections, but with little success, as the increased genital response does not primarily target sexual desire, though the emergence of a naturally occurring hormone called kisspeptin is showing strong therapeutic promise to target some of the underlying causes of HSDD, 
offering an exciting potential future treatment. So kisspeptin is a naturally occurring hormone, which is now very much regarded as the master regulator of reproduction. And that's because it sits at the very top of the reproductive axis, which is the pathway which makes the reproductive hormones that men and women need. And we know all the way from back in 2003 that it was a very important hormone for reproduction. And that was because there were studies where they showed that men and women who had inactivating mutations, so they have loss of function in their kisspeptin system, that those people failed to go through puberty and they were also infertile. Whereas those people who had activating mutations, so gain of function in their kisspeptin system, they actually went through precocious or very early puberty. Now, that area of kisspeptin's biology is now very well established in the medical community, but there's been lots of research interest over the last couple of years looking at some of the other functions of kisspeptin. So, for example, in bone biology, metabolism, and of course, behaviour, which is uh, the focus of my research that I do at Imperial with my mentors. So would you say we're actually in the early phases of, of discovering the full potential of kisspeptin? Very much so. So in terms of behaviour, lots of the studies were done in animal models. So for example, in rodents and fish. And it's only recently been since about 2017 that uh, Dr. Alex Kominos and Professor Wardit Dillo at Imperial first started giving it to healthy men with normal sexual desire to try and understand how it influences reproductive behaviour. And so that very robust background of, of literature is what supported us to be able to do this study in a patient group now. That's great. And the, the name kispeptin, it's, it's a little bit un, un, unusual. So, so, so why the name uh, kispeptin? So it's a really interesting question. Uh, so we know when it was first discovered in 1996, that was at the Pennsylvania State University in Hershey. And that was when they first discovered the kispeptin gene. Now, the city of Hershey is probably better known for its chocolate factory. And in fact, their most famous product is Hershey's Chocolate Kisses. So what Lee and colleagues did was they named their newly identified what they thought was an anti-cancer gene after this uh, chocolate. And in fact, it's years later we've now realised that it has such a significant role in, in reproduction. And so it was obviously very aptly named with the word kiss. Well, very, uh, very relevant then. Um, and, and if we dive uh, a little deeper into kispeptin then, uh, in the absence of this hormone, how does that affect uh, our behaviour? So we now know from a range of animal studies, mostly that have been done in rodents, that kispeptin seems to control and regulate all aspects of reproductive behaviour. So for example, it allows us to select the right partner uh, through to copulation and also certain bonding behaviours. But I guess specifically in terms of absent kispeptin signalling, we know from studies back in 2007 where they essentially knocked out the kispeptin system in male rodents. And what they showed was that those male rodents no longer had a preference for female mice. And what was really interesting in that particular study is that they also gave those mice testosterone to see whether that would restore that sexual partner preference. And it didn't. So what that tells us more again is that testosterone may be not as important as what we historically thought in terms of reproductive behaviour. And as uh, many reproductive hormones are often quite interlinked, how does kispeptin out of interest influence uh, testosterone levels? Yes. So with kispeptin sitting at the very top of the reproductive axis, 
We know that it's uh, secreted by specialized kisspeptin neurons, and they are in an area of the brain called the hypothalamus. And so what that does is it stimulates the remainder of the reproductive axis, which in men ultimately makes testosterone, and in women it would ultimately make estradiol. And so because of that, there's a big place for kisspeptin to be used therapeutically, particularly for men and women that have deficiencies of their sex hormones. So yes, we also know that if you give kisspeptin to men with normal levels of testosterone, that will also stimulate their testosterone levels. I guess the feature of hypoactive sexual desire disorder is that these men have normal levels of testosterone. So do you think there's some potential in the future to possibly use kisspeptin to treat hormonal conditions like uh, hypogonadism or low testosterone um, or reproductive conditions as well? So we know that uh, in our portfolio of studies that we do at Imperial, one of the aspects we look at is very classical reproduction. So we look at men and women that have deficiencies in their sex hormones and we can use kisspeptin to try and stimulate their hormones. So for example, men who have low levels of testosterone, which can be caused by hypogonadism, but very high up reasons for why they're hypogonadal. So often uh, problems to do with their hypothalamus, for example. Um, and similarly, we can do the same in women. Um, and so there's a lot of scope for using kispeptin in that way, but also our, my group have looked previously at using kispeptin in an IVF setting, for example, so to stimulate egg maturation. So yes, there's plenty of scope for using kispeptin in reproduction. A recent study conducted by Dr. Edward Mills and his team generated a lot of media attention with its exciting findings. The study, titled Effects of Kispeptin on Sexual Brain Processing on Penultimescence in Men of HSDD, highlighted the enormous potential of kispeptin in being used as an effective treatment for men who suffer with HSDD. So we recently reported on a randomised controlled trial, and we undertook that in 32 heterosexual men that had HSDD. So each man attended for two study visits each, and they were infused for 75 minutes with kispeptin or placebo on their first study visit. And then they had the other infusion on their second study visit. And of course, the men were blinded to the infusion identity. And so what we used was we used functional MRI, as well as a number of other measures of sexual desire and arousal. So for example, the men wore a device which was to look at penile tumescence, so penile rigidity. They also did a number of questionnaires and that was to look at how they felt. And essentially what we wanted to understand was what effect kispeptin administration would have on brain activity, but also uh, behavioral measures of sexual desire and arousal. And the reason we were interested in doing that is because men that have this condition, there's actually no licensed treatments, nor are there any treatments in late stage development. And what we were able to show with this study was that uh, kispeptin was able to significantly increase a number of behavioural measures of sexual desire and arousal. So, for example, the men reported feeling happier about sex. Then in terms of the penile tumescence, what we were able to show was that kispeptin significantly increased penile rigidity. And actually that reached about 56% more than when the men received a placebo. How was kispeptin doing that? Well, it seemed to be affecting brain activity and specifically it was affecting the brain activity which we spoke about earlier. So for example, those areas which are often hyperactivated in HSDD patients, so the sort of brain areas involved in self-control, self-judgment, they were deactivated by kispeptin. 
And actually what kispeptin was then doing was it was then releasing the brakes and allowing kispeptin to increase the brain activities that were involved in sexual desire and arousal. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's great and, and some really promising results from from your research. And I think, uh, as you mentioned, you've just highlighted the the multitude of, of benefits or potential benefits of kispeptin in, in treating men with, with HSDD. Um, and, you know, you mentioned improving the activity or increasing the activity of regions in the brain responsible for, for regulating arousal. Um, but you also mentioned penaltimescence as well. Um, so for those who aren't aware, would you be able to explain what penaltimescence is? Yes, yeah, so penaltimescence is a way of measuring penile rigidity. So it's essentially a, a, a lasso device that the men wore around the mid-shaft of the penis and it's got very sensitive fibres in it. So if there's any changes in the blood flow to the penis, uh, which would be an erection, then uh, the machine would pick that up and would give us an idea of, of the circumference, basically. So, so following on from that then, is there potential for kispeptin to be a, a useful option for men who, who suffer with uh, erectile dysfunction? Yes, we know that the worldwide prevalence of erectile dysfunction is expected to increase, and that's probably to about 320 million men by 2025. At the same time, we know that lots of the treatments which are available, so for example, the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors like Viagra, in about 40% of men, they don't work. So there's clearly an, an unmet clinical need to try and develop new therapies for men with erectile dysfunction. Kispeptin may be an option. At the moment, we don't know. What we do need is some dedicated studies looking at men with erectile dysfunction and kispeptin, because clearly there was a good stimulatory effect in our study in these men with hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So this scope that it could be used for men with erectile dysfunction. So do we think then that the PD5 inhibitors don't really work uh, for, for men with HSDD uh, because uh, the PD5 inhibitors work by directly targeting the, the blood flow to the penis rather than targeting maybe the underlying cause. Absolutely. So the way that the, the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors work, as you say, is it works as a, a vascular agent. So it's increasing blood flow to the penis. Now, with men that have hypoactive sexual desire disorder, they don't have erectile dysfunction. What they have is a problem with their sexual desire and their inner brain processing. So the way that kispeptin is working is very different. It seems to be not only stimulating peripheral sexual arousal at the level of the penis, but it's doing it by helping to restore some of the, the brain dysfunction activity. No, that's, that's really interesting. And, and as there's you know a proportion of ED patients who are maybe unresponsive, uh, to to uh, ED treatments, do you think there are patients out there that have maybe been diagnosed with erectile dysfunction, um, yet they actually have a, another issue which could be uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder? Yeah, so there's lots of data now showing that men that have often been diagnosed with erectile dysfunction don't actually have erectile dysfunction, and what they have is HSDD. And whether that's because it was uh, a poor history taking from the doctor and they didn't really appreciate that the underlying problem was in sexual desire rather than sexual arousal. And so lots of men out there probably been prescribed drugs like Viagra, but what they need is something else which is more to restore their sexual desire. And I guess this also then raises the importance for, for doctors who are inquiring about sexual health or erectile dysfunction to not only inquire about you know the the frequency of erections and uh, you know the number of times uh, the individual engages in, in sexual activity 
uh, but to also explore the behavioural um, aspects of of arousal and also desire um, to ensure they're effectively uh, and correctly diagnosing the individual. Yeah, I think people are often very hesitant, particularly doctors, to talk about these uh, topics because they find that either the patient will be embarrassed by them or sometimes they will be embarrassed by asking the question. Um, uh, And we know that in terms of sexual health in men, it isn't just about erections, but it's also about how men feel and how they feel at the time of sex and uh, whether they enjoy sex. And often in the context of HSDD, those things aren't there. And that's why men struggle to uh, become aroused during sex because they just don't have the desire to do so. So what's the next step then uh, for you and your research team in terms of further exploring or identifying the the therapeutic potential of of kispeptin? What we did with this particular study, this was a proof of concept. So it was trying to understand, does kispeptin work in this patient group? And certainly what we now need to be doing is we need to be doing larger studies in bigger numbers of patients, as well as looking at broader age groups and also looking at men and women that have, for example, different sexual orientations, different sexual identities. Clearly, this was obviously a very acute study. And so there needs to be studies now looking at what the long-term effects are of kispeptin, trying to understand, for example, what sort of dosing regimes we need to use, what different routes of administration we could use. Uh, So this is very early days for kispeptin, but it certainly provides early promise of efficacy for use in this patient group. So within your study, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, um, the infusion of kispeptin was for a duration of, of 75 minutes. And, and that's where you kind of measured uh, the, the different kind of endpoints in terms of brain processing and also uh, penile tumescence. So what other administration routes are there available or, or will you be exploring uh, to make it a bit more convenient for, for a patient to, be, to, to take kispeptin? Because what, from what I understand anyway, um, when you consume kispeptin orally, it degrades extremely quickly within the body where it's, it's simply kind of ineffective. That's right. So we used an intravenous infusion because that allowed us to control the levels of kispeptin that the men were receiving as part of the study. But what we know is that you can also give kispeptin by subcutaneous injection, so into the subcutaneous fat, essentially. And uh, certainly there's a precedent for using that. So for example, bremelalatide, which is a, an FDA-approved drug for women that have HSDD, but not men, they administer that drug by injection. So uh, injectables is an option. Uh, I guess a really exciting area of kispeptin and some data that we've been generating at Imperial is that you can also give kispeptin as a nasal spray. So uh, in the same way as when you've got hay fever. So um, watch out for that. Lot. And and to finish the, the, the full circle then, so to speak, of, of, of the potential benefits of kispeptin, um, one which you have uh, looked at in, in, in prior research is, is the role of kispeptin in, in, in regulating mood um, and, and how this may be helpful for people with certain mood disorders, uh, such as uh, depression. Um, would you be able to tell us a bit more about that? Yes, we know that uh, mood and emotions are important for reproductive health. Um, And as you say, kispeptin has been shown to regulate mood. So for example, there's been studies done in rodents, so uh, rats and mice, where they've shown that if you administer kispeptin, that it causes a antidepressant-like effect. And in fact, in some of our previous work at Imperial, where we gave kispeptin to healthy men, we showed that kispeptin significantly reduced negative mood. And in fact, that's how antidepressants work. 
So that would be an interesting area to study, seeing what effect kispeptin has in patients with mood disorders. Now, in terms of anxiety, the, the data is actually very conflicting. So studies that have been done in mice and actually fish, they've shown that kispeptin can sometimes cause anxiety, it can sometimes reduce anxiety, or it can have no effect on anxiety. But what's important is that in all of our human studies, we've shown that kispeptin doesn't affect anxiety or levels of stress hormones, which is obviously important when we consider kispeptin as a, a treatment that men and women could be having via the clinic. And so maybe a, a question that might be on the minds of many who are listening to this is, you know, the, the, the potential utility sounds great, um, but what about the side effects of, of, of using kispeptin? So are there any safety concerns we should know about uh, with kispeptin from, from what we know so far? Not at all. So the reason being is that kispeptin is a naturally occurring hormone. And in fact, at Imperial, we've probably given kispeptin to over 500 men and women across our portfolio of different studies. And the reason why is because, as I say, it's an endogenous, it's a natural hormone. It doesn't seem to have any effects on blood pressure or heart rate, which is often the reason why lots of drugs aren't able to be used in patient groups. And in fact, when we administer kispeptin, uh, the levels of kispeptin that we get in the blood are high. So they're about 5,000 picomoles per litre. And just for comparison, in pregnancy, levels of kispeptin reach about 7,000 picomoles per litre. So although we're increasing the levels, we're increasing the levels to still a lot less than what you'd see in normal physiology. Just before we finish up then, you, we, we mentioned earlier in, in a bit of detail the hesitancy of, of many doctors to actually you know, talk about and open up the conversation about sexual health um, or sexual issues with their patients. So what advice would you give to doctors who want to improve their ability to correctly diagnose and support their male patients who may be concerned uh, about certain sexual symptoms? I think the main thing is don't be embarrassed to delve into the history. Often if a patient has come to see you with something, it's because they actually want something sorting out. So don't be embarrassed to ask the questions and patients will often tell you if they don't want to answer a question. So I think delve as, as much as is necessary and don't brush aside any symptoms that seem trivial to the doctor because they're quite clearly important to the patient. So on every episode of the Men's Health Podcast, uh, we normally uh, bust a myth uh, in, in the guest's uh, expertise or area of expertise. So for you, uh, what, what's one myth about HSDD that you would like to bust? So I think that the big myth is that HSDD isn't a priority for treatment. We know that it can have very significant effects on people's quality of life, their relationships. And so it's not really something that we should be brushing aside um, and I guess the thing is that it's treatable. So we're hoping to show with our research that there are new treatments on the horizon and one of those may well be kispeptin. Perfect. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Mills, for joining us on the Men's Health Podcast. It's been really interesting to learn more about uh, kispeptin and, and its potential utility. Uh, and we're really excited to keep up to date with, with your future research. Thank you. So that's all for today's episode of the Men's Health Podcast and be sure to keep an eye out for future episodes as we'll be joined by more leaders and experts in the field of men's health. Mental health. Obesity. Sexual health. Diabetes. Supporting men's health and patient care. 
building knowledge in men's health communities.